through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Joey Watson here, back with you for Out of the Box. Every Thursday, uh, as you know, from midday to one, we roll through uh, the records of one person and, and get an insight into some stories for the, from their life. This week, with an estimated 40,000 hours of music programming for Sydney Radio under her belt, today I'm sitting down with Australia's first female rock DJ. A true trailblazer in radio, Gail Austin started working in Sydney Radio in the late 1960s uh, at the... Uh, going on to produce uh, for shock jock John Laws in the early years and other icons of the airwaves. She then became an on-air icon herself as a founding presenter of the ABC's then radical underground youth station Double J in 1975, one of the first Australian women on the airwaves. Over the decades, Gail's on-air presence, programming and production skills have made her an inspiration and mentor for subsequent generations of Australian broadcasters. So with that, Gail, a very warm welcome and thank you for being on Out of the Box. I'm very humbled that you asked me, Joey. <laughs> Gail, uh, you're, you're no stranger to selecting tracks, as you asked to do for today. Uh, you're trained in the, in the ancient art of music programming. W- what is music programming as a, as a trade? It's a bit... It's a bit difficult to actually talk about, really. It's, um, Why is that? It, it's by feel. It's um, your knowledge of music. It's getting a really good um, um, collection of things together that you can choose from. Um, it's um, making sure there's enough women, enough Australian people in there, um, uh, enough um, Indigenous people in there. So getting the mix right. Uh, if you if you have a little formula like that in your head, you can then start to ad lib around it. Um, uh, there's there's how do you program in and out of things? How do you do gear shifts? Um, those those sorts of things I was taught. It's an art form. Well, it is an art form. It is an actual art form. I, I consider programming to be how you program the music is as important an art form as the actual music itself. Now, you were very young when you started programming music. Where, where were you in, in life to fall into that trade? I was a country kid in the city. Um, I just walked into Grace Brothers in Chatswood to have a look at some cute frocks. The old was, department store. Yep, the old department store. I was looking for a cute new frock to wear and... Um, the loudspeaker on the wall, like a god in the heaven, said, we're looking for a junior program arranger at this radio station. So I ran home and I rang up very, very quickly. Didn't have mobiles then. So radio had already been on your mind before that voice came to you? Um, I've, always, I've always felt that radio was my second home. I sort of grew up um, uh, with itinerant parents Back in those days, it was not long after the Second World War. Gee, that makes me sound old, doesn't it? Um, not long after the Second World War and people were on the road looking for work a lot because there was no work. And my dad was sort of roamed all over the place. We were like gypsies on the road looking for work. He cane, cut cane and and um, uh, f- was a fisherman. Uh, um, we did whatever we could. We lived in the bush, in tents, uh, um, wherever we could by the side of the road sometimes we ate kangaroo or snakes or <laughs> um, I thought it was a fabulous childhood when I spoke to my mum years and years later and said mum thanks for that great childhood it was fantastic <laughs> she said it was the worst time of her life <laughs> and I thought I thought wow what a great mum because we didn't get any of her stress about it we just got it was fun mm. yeah so on the road you're very much other. You don't belong to society. You're on the outside. There's just you and your family inside the car and that's what you've got. Usually when you arrive at places, people aren't too interested in letting you into their houses because you're not normal like everyone else. So you're travelling in this little family unit. And my mum used to always sing and that's what kept us going for a while and then when the car radio happened when we got a car with a radio in it that was like that was liberation for me um that was my first thinking about it much later the radio was the first virtual reality it was the precursor of of what's happening now because 
it's a virtual world. It's a virtual relationship, and that's what I fell in love with. Keeping the the art of music programming uh, in in mind, what 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 should we play first, and and why? Okay. Um, well, nice little segue out of on the road, in the car. Uh, the radio is your little window on the world. There's a song that stays in my head because I remember driving down the Bull Eye Pass with my Uncle Arnold in the car and the family and everyone there and singing out at the top of our lungs, Dayo. Um, the reason why I loved Dayo and why, why it was such an important thing for me I, I, thinking about it later was I understood that the guy who sang it, Harry Belafonte, was a black man and I had absolutely no experience of black people. Um, in Australia at that time it was very white Australia. I'd never met a black person and there's this fabulous black person on the, ra- on the, on the radio singing Dayo <laughs> and um, I, I just, my impression was he gave me joy. He made me feel included. I think maybe it connected with me because I remember running through the peanut fields one day while my dad was working there, me and my brother, and we were just picking peanuts and having a nice little time. And I remember one of Dad's friends saying, you better get those kids some shoes, mate. It's not right that they run around you know, with no shoes on. They're like a couple of little black fellas. That's the connection that stayed in my head. So when I saw Harry Belafonte, he was a black fellow too. Um, and it was my first connection to um, people outside my own, my own colour, my own place. Damn!
Harry Belafonte there with probably the most famous rendition of the Calypso classic, the Banana Boat song, Deo. That was brought into Out of the Box today by radio veteran Gail Austin. This is Out of the Box on your radio, on podcast. Gail, sometime after music program, you make the bold decision uh, to go and work for John Laws, the, the Golden Tonsils as he was known maybe one of the most nefarious figures in Australian media history. What drove you to him? Um, I actually didn't decide to go and work with him. I I, I was working in the 2UW Record Library um, and I'd changed over from the track-by-track format where you feel the music and you you go by feel yourself and you've, you've got some sort of active engagement in it. You go and find the tracks, you listen to the tracks, you're hungry, you're gathering, gathering, gathering all the time. And I went to Top 40. um, And the library work consisted then of cataloguing. The girls in the record library had nothing to do with the music. We catalogued it, basically. So this is a kind of moment in radio history where where we move from broad curation and programming to just churning out the same 40 tracks continuously, which is the style that many radio listeners, or obviously not FBI radio listeners, but but others would be familiar with today. It's a very, it's a very, very, uh, yeah, very interesting thing. Um, There's another couple of stories connected with that about how it actually cuts the listener off from the radio when you go into that regulated um, format. Um, when I went to TUW and I was doing Top 40, I got really bored, you know, because I'd been used to hunting out the records, being engaging in it, you know, programming it, getting creative, um, finding nice little segs, you know, uh, and went to just cataloguing and typing, basically. So I started out a newsletter, um, which I decided that uh, those blokes on air they're not saying much they weren't allowed to say much they were only out and they were time and weather men they had to say you're on blah blah uw and my name's blah and the time is so and and unless they were a big star like john laws they weren't allowed to say very much at all um so i decided in my infinite wisdom at 17 um pretending i was 18 um that I knew a lot better, as we all do at that age, and um, I wrote. I started writing a newsletter. Um, I also very naively thought that every single person connected with the station should have a copy of it. So I sent a copy upstairs to the general manager of the whole network and down to the program director. Uh, the program director wasn't too happy because... He went, why did you go over my head, blah, 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 blah. And, and I, I just said, oh, sorry, I just thought everyone should get a copy, you know, to know what's happening. Um, what it did do was it drew people's attention to me. I didn't get to send it up to the general manager anymore. That wasn't cool. But I did keep on writing the newsletter in the afternoons and in the mornings I'd be typing and um, cataloguing. Um, so I, I kept on making myself busy. But because I'd... Because I'd um, come to the attention of the people up there, um, John Laws was just starting out in radio, I mean in talkback. He was doing all the talkback himself. He was he was answering the phone calls in between the uh, the tracks while the tracks were on. Uh, he was doing a lot of it. And they decided that they needed a girl to sit downstairs in this little booth and answer the phones and send them up to him. Um, so... Th- Roger Summerall, who was the uh, station operations manager, came to me one day and said, OK, I'll come with me. So um, I sort of went with him and he said, now, stopped outside of this office and he said, now, look, I'm going to introduce you to John Laws. Um, whatever he says, just say yes and I'll fix it up later if it's not right, right? OK. So, <laughs> OK, so I went into the room and I sat down in the chair and John's sitting up there with his big long legs up on his desk and I look around and the, the office is bigger than the general manager's upstairs. It's got a bar, it's got, it's got, it's got a library, it's got, it's got, you know, the full stereo system, it's got lounge chairs. <laughs> it's like, it's quite amazing. Um, at that time, I wasn't overly impressed because I wasn't overly impressed with John Laws. Um, well, did he already have his reputation? Uh, John Laws became the kind of Alan Jones of John, his day, a right-wing provocateur. John, well, let me just tell you that he was never like Alan Jones. Um, Why do you say that? Um, 
I'll, t- I'll tell you how John and I met. John said, um, I hear you don't like me. And I went, well, yeah, um, a little, mm-hmm. <laughs> he instantly liked me for it because up until that time, I'd seen him walking around corridors going to the studio from his, from his office to go on air and people had plastered themselves against the wall so they'd get out of his way. He was treated like a god. Um, so he actually liked the fact that I didn't like him. And he asked me if he, I'd work with him. He said, well, will you work with me? And I said, look, I've got, I, I'm a music programmer. I've spent all this time learning how to do it. I don't want to be a telephone operator. I'm sorry. Um, and he said, well, look, give it a go. If you hate it, you don't have to do it. Give it a go for three months and see what you think. So that's how we started. I started in a little booth downstairs with this little, those little things you push down and you yell out into it in the squawk box, John, there's a call online too, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then I got bored with that, so I started programming them and saying, well, it's blah, blah, but it'd go better after that one and that one. And, and one day as a program director's walking past, John yells down through the thing, do you want my job or something? And the program director went, ooh, ooh, um, but what it did, it gave me a bit more cachet from from the little booth downstairs where we sent up through the squawk box the, the fact that there was a call to John. We went, we changed the whole studios. We redesigned the whole studios where I was next to him, looking through the window at him. So I be, actually became a very tight part of the team. The reason why I had admiration for him was he allowed it to happen. He, he loved the fact that there was someone there who was going to tell him he's a dickhead if he was going to be a dickhead, and I wasn't impressed with him. So he loved that. It was some honesty that was going on. I also started to realise that John Laws was a radio artist. He knew how to polarise his audience. He knew how to get people to hate him, to love him and hate him, but they loved listening to him so that they could hate him. You see, so they had some some person they hated they could rail against, and he knew how to walk that line. But dis- you- despite everything that I heard about John Laws saying he's a sexist pig, he's a shock jock, he's a this, he's a that, he actually wasn't. He, he there's not one person who went to air who he yelled at who didn't deserve it. There were so many people off air that he actually paid their telephone bills. You know, darling, you can't pay your electricity. Just hang on a second. You know. He was a, a, he was quite an amazing person. He could he could edit a, a record while it was going around while he was talking on air to someone and come in. He didn't like that first. He'd cut it out while while he's talking. I'd never seen anyone do that before. This is in a time when announcers did not do their own panelling. Mm. Okay, he, he did. But I suppose in some sense, I, I mean, it, it is true that. Uh, even if he wasn't quite as extreme as as the Ray Hadley's Island Jones of today, he he was a kind of template for that. Um, no, not at all. Never, never. I never ever heard John say who he was voting for. I never in in the three. I only worked with him for three years. In the three years I worked, and during that time, he became number one. Okay, he became the number one talkback announcer in the world during those three years. Mm-hmm. After we'd sorted out. The logistics of the talkback side of it. Sure, I mean, but there, I mean, there were instances of homophobic and sexist comment on air. There was ne- never. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't have it, it in front it, of me. He, he had a sense of humour, but people didn't get his sense of humour. Darling, I'm gay, and I was there, and he knew I was gay, and he'd go on air, and he'd say, he'd say, I'm going to my farm, but Gail doesn't want to go. She wants to ride around in her MG with Vicky. <laughs> Yeah, he was not homophobic. He right. was absolutely, totally supportive of me. So, why do you think that in a time when women weren't in that in that arena, they were not allowed near the, near the studio? So, why do you think that John Laws has um, kind of garnered that reputation in the wake of his career? Then, um, is there a reason for that? Because um, it, it, what you're saying, I guess, is against the grain of what I know, and po- it's very popular uh, opinion would be, which which makes it interesting. And I was always told never to say this stuff about John Laws because it was very uncool. But stuff it, it's not, you know. Um, he was a, he was a radio artist. He knew how to play the game. He knew how to he knew how to polarize so that half hated him, but listened to him so they could hate him, and half loved him. Um, he was. There were a couple of times where um, there was one time in the record library where where. I was working in the record library in the afternoon and producing John in the morning, the talk back in the morning. And in the afternoon one day I went back to the record library and the program director said, uh, Gail, uh, 
blah blah the girl who worked in the record library um is behind in her work can you help her out please can you can you do her work for her and i went hang on a second i've just done three hours on the air with john uh, and some preparation time before it and that after that and then i've got to do my own work no i won't do that it's not right i got fired for it i got fired by the program director because i disobeyed his order his order so i went i was so upset I just walked out of the station and walked around town all day while John did my job and his job on air and covered for me. He covered for me. I came back at the end of the show. He's saying, well, goodbye world or whatever it was he was saying. And he looked over at me and I'm sitting there just still dumbfounded. And he got up and he walked in and he sat in a little chair beside me and said, you okay? What's happening? So what do you want to play for, for John Laws that then? Me what should John. we play now? He loved Roger Miller. And so I reckon we should play You Can't Roll a Skate in a Buffalo Herd. You can't roll a skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roll a skate in a buffalo herd. You can't roll a skate in a buffalo herd. But you can be happy if you've mind to. You can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. You can't take a shower in a parakeet cage. Shower in a parakeet cage, but you can be happy if you've mind to. All you gotta do is put your mind to it. Knuckle down, buckle down, do it, do it, do it. Well, you can't go swimming in a baseball pool. You can't go swimming in a baseball pool. You can't go swimming in a baseball pool. But you can be happy if you've mind to. on your back but you can be happy if you've mind to you can't drive around with a tiger in your car you can't drive around with a tiger in your car you can't drive around with a tiger in your car but you can be happy if you've mind to all you gotta do is put your mind to it knuckle down buckle down do it do it do it well you can't roller skate in the buffalo herd you can't roller skate in the buffalo herd you can't roller skate in the buffalo herd Happy if you've a mind to You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch You can't go fishing in a watermelon patch But you can be happy if you've a mind to You can't roller skate in the buffalo herd You can't roller skate in the buffalo herd You can't roller skate That's an American classic You can't roller skate in a buffalo herd Roger Miller, today brought in to Out of the Box by uh, radio veteran Gail Austin. We've got lots of stories about the radio today. Of course, you can catch this episode and others uh, on podcasts wherever you wherever you happen to get those. Gail, now now we're moving from one of the more conservative station, stations or shows in the country to a little radical ABC startup, uh, as it then was, uh, called Double J. And it's the mid-70s. Can we start with how had Double J come into existence? How, what was the genesis of it? Whitlam government's in, in power. Uh, ABC's freaking out about their audience dying off. They need a younger audience. Sounds familiar. Very familiar. It was there all the time that I was there, and I was there for 16 years. It was still the same old freak out. Um, um, one of Whitlam's ministers, oh, we need to get some young people in here. How about we wake up a stick out in the suburbs and wake up a transmitter and start up a radio station for the young people and then we can get the, the listeners can go on to the ABC and it'll be growing the audience. So they um, told the ABC that they'd been given a licence. The ABC panicked and went, shit, who do we know who, who knows about young people? So Marius Webb actually heard the announcement on the radio in the morning that they'd been given the license so he went oh, you beauty <laughs> so he rushed into the station um, they'd asked ron moss who was the producer of chris winter's room to move show which was a the iconic beginning of double j um, it was one of the only real music uh, shows on the radio in the country and chris was a big music guru so chris's producer ron moss was there and marius just barged in and sort of became the other half of the two coordinators to start the station. They were given the brief to start the station. We, we moved 
down to uh, William Street in this huge, 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 empty sort of multi-storey floored thing that looked like a giant warehouse aircraft hangar with all this horrible throwaway furniture in it, which was our furniture. Um, and we all sat on the floor and had eight-hour meetings. And, um, well, uh, getting the name was interesting. It was named after the J um, because it was um, controversial and we wanted to poke fun at everyone as much as possible as soon as we could and break as many boundaries as we could, push oh, so boundaries. Do you, do you mean the J is in a joint? Yeah, yeah. Double J is named for a joint, y- Yeah. which therefore Triple J is named for marijuana. Triple J, no, I don't know if they well, ever smoked it. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great bit of music trivia. <laughs> Um, uh, sorry, but anyway, I, I, I digress. I understand. So <laughs> That's just a little pocket, a then, little gem for the listener. But the, then the, we wanted, the sky hooks was yeah, the first Yeah, well, we wanted, we wanted an Australian. It had to be an Australian because very little Australian music was being played on Australian radio. They used to only play American shit and, and um, English stuff because, you know, we're still part of the colony back then, um, really. And um, we decided it had to be Australian and we rather liked the idea that it was banned on commercial radio and, and Marius was very cluey. He was quite an intelligent bloke who knew the laws and knew that the commercial radio bans didn't apply to the ABC. So that was the one. It was the... It was the you the, only like me because... You just I'm like good. me because I'm good in bed. <laughs> you just like me. Well, listen, give me some head. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get on air? I was invited to do a mid-dawn because... Well, I was actually invited to be the program director to start with because they didn't know any um, women. There were no women to ask apart from a few that worked in the ABC. No women anywhere on there or, or anywhere in the radio stations apart from an admin. Um, so I got invited um, to be the program director and because I'd been working with music all the time, I, I refused the job and said, no, I want to do something different. It's time for me to do something different. So they gave me a midnight to dawn. I had absolutely no talent. Um, I was very hesitant. Uh, the only thing that saved me was my music programming. Right. When I spoke, I spoke in a really high voice because I was really nervous. My voice went up, up in my, you know, my throat constricted. Oh, but, you listen, girls. <laughs> but you, you being on air as a woman kind of made history in a way. I was in the right place at the right time. I had I had no on air talent at all. It took me five years to get my thing my groove down. Um, uh, where I stayed on midnight to dawn for the whole of Double J years. I wasn't a major player in Double J. I was too busy trying to figure out how a woman broadcast. I asked the um, how did you figure that out? Well, I asked Marius and Ron and the, the guys because we had the creme de la creme of the men from the all around the country that were chosen to work on this station. Everyone wanted to work there. Um, and um, uh, so I asked them, you know, what do I do? How, how do I learn this? And they told me, just listen to the guys. And I went, no, I'm a woman. I don't want them to sound like a guy, you know. So I went away on my midnight to dawn and I'd tape every program I did and get home and listen to it back again and get excruciatingly embarrassed and think, well, why didn't that work and how can it work better and what can I do here? And just did that. Just kept on fine-tuning, fine-tuning, fine-tuning. And, so, and what were you actually learning in that process? You, you just mentioned that you didn't want to broadcast like a um, guy. You wanted to broadcast like a woman. Yeah. What did that mean for what you sounded like in the microphone? I don't know. I don't know what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> I was just, I was just um, floating it. Um, what did it mean? It, well, it meant that, that, that my style evolved out of me, out of not, not listening and copying a guy on the radio, you know, big jock yelling and screaming and, or any of that stuff. Um, it, yeah, um, I don't know. I, and I started to realise that your voice is also an instrument and it has to measure up to the music. It has to be part of it. It has to be just as musical as 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 the um, the music to fit. Um um, I realised that uh, somewhere along the line, a couple of years in, that rather than rather than getting nervous and my voice going all tight like women do, um, and my voice going up there, if I actually follow my breath from my diaphragm and and follow that energy and that that, that chakras up there, you know, and the energy, the energy is breath and the breath is, is energy and put my voice in that channel, 
it changed my voice completely. The the station was plagued by a scandal. It was kind of part of being Double J, that it was radical and controversial. I guess there are, there are a few that we could talk about. One was being sued by the New South Wales Police Commissioner, <laughs> which is a pretty big scale for an ABC organisation. What, what happened? Um, we... <laughs> I think it was we did uh, a documentary on Bob Askin, the premier, being involved in the illegal gambling. Um, that was one of our first lessons. We found out that in Australia, truth is not a defence. Um, so we got sued for a million bucks. A million bucks. In those days, a million bucks was like really big. <laughs> From the ABC to the New South Wales Police Commissioner. Uh-huh. There was a sort of phone tapping scandal in the early years. <laughs> what do you know about um, that? People started to think that we were dangerous because we kept on, when people did shitty things in public, uh, you know, politicians and things, we, we called them out on it. And that had never been done before. We were a nice little little colony, you know, trying to be pretend British people all nice and proper up until then. There was all this sleazy stuff going on behind the scenes because they could get away with it because nobody questioned it. But we didn't buy into that stuff and, and when we saw stuff, we called it. And people started to think we were dangerous. And so every one of us had an ASIO file. Um, our telephones were tapped. There was a dark van parked outside the office watching us. <laughs> and one day, one of the journos went out there and said, uh, what are you doing out here, mate? Um he looked in and he noticed all this recording equipment in the blacked out back of the van and these two blokes sitting there, just sitting there. And and he said, what are you doing? And and, and um, they went, uh, 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 and, and the journo said, look, mate, we got women working back here at night. This is really scary for them. I don't think you should be doing this. And they went. That was the thing. <laughs> they went, but they did follow people home. Um, the top announcer's report reported that they, a car followed them home and kept an eye on them. It was it was pretty. It was a little bit scary, but it was a little bit sort of haha. It's working. Um, what, what was the wildest thing that happened from those memories? I mean, it's a whole hazy period now, I guess. But was there a guest or anything in particular that that strikes you? Uh, Lou Reed came in for an interview and was so stoned he fell off his chair in the middle of the interview. A no- notoriously hard interview anyway. <laughs> uh, Hunter S. Thompson came and um, um, I, I don't really like talking about drugs because it actually encourages people to get onto them. I don't really think drugs are good for you after seeing what the damage that I'd seen done. But Hunter S. Thompson came and he went next door to this little house where he consumed copious amounts of cocaine and all sorts of other things, and then they did the interview with him. And it went for about a, oh, it was about an hour or something. And I was on air late at night. I was the only one on air late at night. Um, and so they came in to me and said, oh, this is Hunter, X, Hunter S. Thompson. We've just interviewed him. Can you put it on? Sure, okay. And this is Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and so we had a hunter, S. Um, S. Thompson. In the flesh. In the flesh, very stoned, very rambly, very sort of, what's that doing on the radio? Um, <laughs> but it was really interesting because it was real. People loved it because it was real. What do we want to play now for Double J, Gail? Let's get back to some music. Double J, okay. Double J, for me, a little country kid who knew nothing about politics, it educated me in politics. When I first went there, I had no idea what um, left and right wing politics were. I thought, what, what are they talking about? Um, and in that time in Australia, in the, in the 70s, not very many people on the station had any idea of politics. I mean, apart from Marius and a few people there, all the rest of us were just wide-eyed and legless, you know, we're just country kids and used to being told what to do and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the station educated me in politics and I started to see the power of music and how it can start to change things, especially when we started playing things like Free Nelson Mandela. 
I watched that. I know that wasn't responsible for him getting out of jail, but I do think that in it being played around the world and getting everyone to rally behind free Nelson Mandela, that it actually made a huge difference and it showed me how powerful music is and how powerful it is when you gather your listeners together. Scar Revival, the specials with their influential anti-apartheid track, Free Nelson Mandela. That was brought onto this show out of the box by Gail Austin. She was uh, 
Australia's one of Australia's first female broadcasters there at the advent of Double J, now Triple J. Gail, what was the purge of 1990, an ominous title, kind of Soviet in intention? The J's changed twice. It changed when it changed from double J and went triple J, and it decided uh, we're getting a bit worried that we're sounding like old fogies and old dinosaurs. It better be changed, and and the whole format changed, and the whole guts of, for me, the whole guts of the radio station went out the window. Um, We still had... We still had uh, the listeners still thought that we were we were them and, and they were us, and so we had that relationship with them where they felt ownership of the station. Um, but we were playing a format. We went into playing format rack tracks. We called them. Um, I didn't because I worked late at night, and so I got to play from the weird shit box, which meant I played the good stuff. But um, all through the day, they they had a format, and that started to change the station. That started to the people started to lose the passion. When we were Double J, the Fraser government, when they came in, threatened to close us down. We were an experiment. We were an experiment all through Double J years. The Fraser government said, no, we're going to close it down. Bunch of hippies, don't want to know about that, troublemakers. We're going to close them down. And the audience rose up around the country and said, you will not take our radio station. And it, they, it was such a solid solid love for the station that Fraser government backed down and stopped and, and went okay you're not closing down okay so when we went when we went sorry when we went um, FM and went regulated we lost that love of the listeners for us and that's when it started to change fortunately there were enough of us who were there at the beginning who were still a bunch of radical um, troublemakers um, and we didn't like the idea of being so regulated, and we actually started to subvert, subvert the um, the, the the playlist and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it, we still had a lot of the station still had a lot of love for, for us. Uh, the, the listeners still had a lot, a lot of love for us. Then there was um, we were all tricked into reapplying for our jobs. Um, we were told that um, we just want to um, move it into a better system so that you get you, you've, you've got um, a, a, a better way of um, improving your pay as you as you learn more you can but at the moment you're at this ceiling so we're going to change it over and then they interviewed all of us they got in a commercial person Barry Chapman who was mr. Triple M at the time um, and uh, they interviewed all of us, and one by one, the newsroom went, the producers went, and then all the announcers went. The day that they closed down the station when the announcers went, they locked the station, they cut off all the telephones so we couldn't tell people about what was happening, and one by one they said, sorry, didn't get the job, sorry, didn't get the job. When I went in there, I was told, well, Gail, um you almost passed the criteria but you didn't get the job so we were all we were all just sacked we were all just sacked and the station went more commercial and it went after the ratings the minute they started to chase the ratings that's i think when they lost it we 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 were actually told when we started at double j that we weren't allowed to chase the ratings we weren't allowed to because that was actually taking money from private enterprise who earned their money that way and we were, act- we were we were funded, so we had no right to do that, to take away their way to earn their living. That was what we were told at the beginning. Changed when the economic stuff happened in the 80s and the world started to become overly money-hungry. There's a lot in that. Gail, what should, we, what should we play now to that kind of transition? What do you want to put into the airwaves? It was very, very hard for the women on that station. We were trying to change the codes, and yet next to the the whoopee-doo best announcers around the country, um, we sounded very amateurish. And and each time they put a woman on air, they'd say, see, I told you it wouldn't work, and they pulled them off again. Um, it It was very, very difficult. I was told stuff like, no wonder women sound bad on air. Um, the microphones were built for men. So, of course, women sound terrible. It wasn't made for their voices. They didn't get that. No, it wasn't that the voices of the women were um, were not good for the microphone. It was that we hadn't been taught from young like men are, like to speak up like a man, or as I, as I had discovered myself, 
Put your voice in your diaphragm. You don't have to get scared and go a bit like that. You can put your voice in your diaphragm. And you've got a much more t- better tone. And, of course, the microphone's fabulous for it. Um, so the, the women were not taken seriously. I was not taken seriously I, um, all through the thing. One, one day I was doing um, uh, the morning show and a journo in New York had just bought this seven-inch disc with a hole in the middle and he gave us the whole thing to put in the hole and, and he, he said, I found it in the back alley. There's only been 500 copies printed. And I looked at it and it was Laurie Anderson. I was Superman and went, wow, it's a woman. And it's, so I put it on and it, it blew my mind. I put it on the air. After I came off the air, I was called into the um, an, uh, coordinator's office. Uh, Gail, um, what are you doing playing that seven-minute-long thing that went, uh, 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 uh? Do you think that's appropriate for the afternoon? They would never have said that to a man. They would have said, oh, brilliant, stroke of brilliance. They would have done, that's the attitude to the guys. To the women, it was always, we were doing the wrong thing because it wasn't what it wasn't familiar. We had, it hadn't been normalised yet. Um at that moment, there was a knock on the door, and it was a switchboard operator. <laughs> he walked in and went, excuse me, Gail, the switchboard's been bombarded by all these people who want to know who sang that song going, uh, 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 <laughs> And so the, the, they, they couldn't do anything to me because it actually was, it worked. It worked. Um, but that was a different attitude between the men and the women. So I think we should hear Laurie Anderson, Oh Superman. Is the hand, the hand that takes 
This is the hand. The hand that takes. This is the hand. The hand that takes. Here come the plane. They're American planes, made in America. Smoking, oh, non smoking. And the voice said, Neither snow nor rain.
very current sounding Laurie Anderson with a 1982 track of Superman that was brought in by foundational Australian alternative music broadcaster Gail Austin. This is out of the box on your radio and on podcast. Gail, to conclude, I might ask you generally, why do you think radio persists as, as a medium? I mean, there's a lot said about it. In some ways, it's quite miraculous that I'm now conducting a medium that my grandparents would have listened to, that their parents would have listened to even. Why do you think people are still tuning in? Radio is the most intimate form of communication. We are so intimate with our listeners. We are in their bedrooms, we're in their bathrooms, we're in their head, and we have no produced-up images to distract us. It's a direct conversation. And it's also the magic, part of the magic is you don't have to be what you, you want to be in that other person's head. You are what they want you to be. So it's a it's a very very interesting phenomenon. Commercial uh, um, community radio is real. People love it, and it's got the internet to help help it to you know it's got transmitted. It's global now, so it is a crucial time for community radio for people to get community spirited because that's what people around the world want. Well, let's leave it with uh, with that beautiful message that I can certainly get behind, and I've no doubt the listener will as well. What what do you want to play to to finish this episode? Okay, uh, um, this is an Australian track I'd like to play. It's a woman called Mopsy Beans. I play it because Mopsy Beans was a a performer who was part of the cabaret conspiracy team who, who sort of changed cabaret in Australia and then went to America and changed it over there as well. She was a very important member of this team because she wrote about Australia at a time when nobody wrote about Australia. We had huge cultural cringe going on. We were really embarrassed about our own culture. And Mopsy said, no, I'm going to write about who we are. She even had herself photographed out t- outside the, the, the dirgiest station, train station she could find, Blacktown Station, to make a point. This is us. This is who we are. Loved her for it. Her lyrics were all about that. She was the first DIY person in Australia to do her own music. She wrote it. She sang it. She arranged it. She recorded it herself in her bathroom. She had it pressed. She distributed it herself because she wanted independence. She didn't want to get caught up in the in the commercial crap of the, the mainstream people. So I'd like to play Mopsy Beans. But also I just want this other tiny little story why I want to play Mopsy is... Mopsy was my partner. We were together for 30 years, okay? About nine years ago, she got leukemia, and I nursed her until she, was, until she died. One night, she was there, and she was... You know that death rattle that happens in the throat of people who are dying? I don't, you've probably never known it because you're too young and you haven't experienced too much of it. But when people are dying, you get this death rattle happening and you're gasping for breath. You're like breathing <gasps> like that. You're just trying to hang on to every breath you can get. And that's where Mopsy was. She was gasping for breath. And I thought, okay, it's time. It's time. Mopsy was a musician. Remember, Mopsy was a musician. She studied at the conservatorium before she became a punk. Um, I went and got her favourite, favourite violin concerto. We won't play it here because it goes for about 25 minutes. Um, So we're going to play a Mopsy track. And I put the violin concerto on and she went from going (gasps) to total silence. She started breathing very normally. The doctor said it was impossible. I watched this happen. As the music played... Mopsy went very, 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 very calm. The music ended. Mopsy had three breaths like that, and she was gone. The power of music. She was hanging on, she was struggling, she was fighting. She disappeared into her favourite violin concerto. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Gail Austin, thank you very much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Welcome. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Yeah.
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.